He's an artist in every sense of the word. Jordan Esso is gifted with artistic talent and abilities that most people could only hope to have. He's done paintings, film, performance art. He's pretty much done it all. Fun fact, my daughter Delilah's name is an homage to the character of Lila Crane, the character played by Vera Miles in Psycho. Vera Miles is Jordan's grandmother. I'm excited to be talking to him about his career and his art, and here he is. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Cool. Perfect. How, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. It was actually a good day here, and it's sunny. That's always good because I feel like it rains here a lot. Uh, how was your day today? Oh, see, I live in an opposite climate, so having grown up in California where every day is practically sunny, I, I get a little tired of it, so I'm envious, <laughs> actually, of your weather. <laughs> but otherwise, it's good. It's hot. You know, it's dry. It's California. Right, right, for sure. Um, you want to just jump into it, or yeah, that'd I mean, be fine. perfect, awesome. Yeah. Okay, so um, I sent you the questions in advance, which I don't typically do, but I thought that I, I thought you should look at them, kind of get an idea of what it was, because you know, I, nobody else knows, but I, I contacted you for an entirely different reason, you know, yeah. and then it morphed into this episode that we're doing now which is great because i think some of the best ideas and projects that you have are not what you originally intended them to be you know sometimes so i think it's great and yeah. uh yeah so uh my first question which i typically ask everybody is uh you know what have you been doing during quarantine to stay busy you've been working on some art yes definitely art uh making a lot of visual art you know but also writing and i work on my drawings and paintings every day kind of without exception and i also write every day these are rules that i make for myself so it becomes part of the like the innate rhythm of the day it's just sometimes days are filled with distractions and i may not get to it until late at night but i, I won't go to sleep without doing it so other days like yesterday i was able to spend most of the day on drawing um it's sort of a peculiar discipline making visual art because it's so transportive like um right Art making takes a long time, and under the best circumstances, you do kind of disappear into it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, it does feel <laughs> it does feel like going to war sometimes in a way because it does fight you. You are confronting something significant, like you're making something out of nothing. You're accountable yeah. for the process, for the results. It's easy to be hard on oneself. But in another way, during quarantine, it's it's such a gift to to be an artist, to be connected to something larger than yourself. And you're always attached to it. You know, artists are in quarantine in the same numbers as everyone else, but we're never like out of work, if you know what I mean. Yeah, 
and you know I've, I've actually heard that from a couple different people that they're enjoying you know the time that they've gotten now the extra time to work on everything but that's really interesting too what you were saying about you know your self-discipline you won't go to bed until you've actually done you know you to complete your checklist for the day that's really really cool i think it's important uh to have that commitment you know we do have extra time uh theoretically you know we have extra time but it's easy also to i think be consumed by con distractions you know and anxiety like there's just a lot of free-floating anxiety about the uncertainty about oh, yeah. so many things um, yeah. that, that can kind of put cement in your wheels. So, yeah, sure. yeah. So I got into that habit, really just certain art practices that I was very inspired by were daily practice, diaristic exercises where you just doing it every day was an important aspect of making the work. Um, and so even though there are parts of my personality that really resent a schedule, uh, like a lot of us, um, I find it very useful to just get into the routine of doing the work and knowing that you're going to do it and you don't even have to think about it. Right. It is, that is, it's really cool, honestly, that you have that about you, that discipline. It really is. So when did you realize that you had a gift and basically you could create beauty and would be known as uh, what we know as an artist? Uh, I mean, I know it's sort of a rarefied term in a way, the, the, the word artist, but I never really considered that I might be something other than that. You know, I was always compelled to make art. I was always making art. My parents always supported that pursuit. So I literally cannot remember a different understanding or self-conception of myself. So it's, it's just, um, you know, it's like a it's lifelong commitment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, at a very young age, you just make that commitment to, to observation and critical thinking both verbal and nonverbal, um, and then the more technical aspects of just if you paint or draw. I mean, not all artists do that, but if you if you paint or draw or sculpt, like there there's hand-eye coordination, there's you know the the various uh, materials and techniques that you become familiar with. You know, I guess one shouldn't say it's mastering anything. I mean, who wants to master something? That's when boredom can set in. You're supposed to be a, a lifelong Very student. True. Yeah. Very true. <laughs> Which I was impressed to, to learn that you actually, that you do write, you know, because that's, that's not something that I had actually known about you. So, um, yeah, it's um, really cool. I can learn that too, you know. Writing is a different, I guess, um, discipline in that it, it, it asks you to, um, to be engaged in like very specific psychological and intellectual ways whereas making visual art sometimes it's it's just so nonverbal that it is a it just occupies a different space of, of your brain but there is also i think something i've always felt whether you're filmmaking or making a painting or you're making a piece of music or you're writing an essay or a short story the components i think are somewhat interchangeable and in that they're all about relationships between different elements so the proportionality of like a um, a shadow in a painting versus the light areas in a painting i think is relatable to the proportions in a narrative that are drama versus um uh maybe you know the, the emptiness of everyday moments or in a sculpture it could be you know the, the negative space versus the space that is highly textured like in a piece of music it could be you know, the repetitions of the chorus versus maybe the elongated surprises that can happen in a bridge. So there is something very relatable that 
if you if you learn it about one of these crafts, you can kind of transpose that. Yeah. Very well said. So you said previously that you didn't want to be a father, that you kind of felt your time had come and gone to be a father. So is that something that you're still feeling pretty passionate about today? I would imagine with the state the world's in right now, but but is that something you're still feeling passionate about yourself? Uh, I mean, it's hard to say that the time for anything has truly come and gone, but I don't see children in my future. I mean, if we, if we mean human children, I, I don't right. think it's crazy to think of your artwork as children, that they certainly no. demand enough of your attention and you, you learn from them, you give them as, as, as much attention as they, they ask of you, you take care of them. I'm very protective of my art, so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, that's very, a very interesting way of looking at it, which, I mean, I agree completely with what you're saying. I mean, they couldn't come in the world without me, right? Exactly, <laughs> and you nurture them, they grow, you know, and you want them to be the best they can be. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, it's, it's a great, uh, great parallel there, it really is. Um. What is your favorite project that you've done, either performance or otherwise? I guess tied to your last question, um, I'm sure you were referring to a project that I did called Strict Father Model. And this was a multidisciplinary art installation at a gallery in Oakland where I documented the process of having a vasectomy. And there were just many aspects of that show that I think really worked well. It's it's tricky sometimes, despite what I think I just went into about how different art forms do have innate relationships on a sort of structural level, at least in mm -hmm. the creation of them. It's sometimes tricky to put them all in a room together. And I had in this installation um, a video that documented the the actual surgical sterilization. And then I had a series of 99 diptychs on paper that framed both walls main walls of the gallery it was sort of a long space and then there were assemblage sculptures uh there were photographs in the catalog there were drawings and paintings and it just all came together i think in exactly the way that i wanted it to so i still think very fondly of that show very good very good i'm glad and so what was was what was the most challenging project you've undertaken would you say that might have been it or was there something different? Let's see. Um, you know, the first time I did nude performance art was very empowering because I met a different kind of challenge, uh, a psychological challenge. You know, I had been doing performance art monologues for several years inspired by people like Karen Finley and Spalding Gray and Laurie Anderson, and even to a certain extent, like comedians like Richard Pryor, though it, it wasn't comedic work I was doing. Um, there was something about the storytelling involved in stand-up that I responded to. And I even, you know, uh, co-founded a performance art festival. And I liked writing the monologues and I liked performing them. But I ultimately felt like monologue work wasn't necessarily the best I had to offer. So the most compelling performance art that I responded to as, a, as an audience member was often non-verbal work and non-traditional in, in a lot of ways. And so... You know, if you aren't doing theater, if you're doing what I refer to as body ritual work, mm -hmm. you have to begin to question why you're wearing a costume, which like any set of clothes is. It's a disguise between you and the audience. And sometimes, obviously, in like traditional theater, that, that serves a very specific and necessary purpose. But if you're making performance art and the answer is 
you're you're wearing clothes because you're ashamed to be naked in front of other people, then you have an artistic problem because your shame yeah. is now dictating the formal elements of the work. So I believe that the, and, and I, I believe then, I believe now that the most elemental, most powerful performance art is often done nude because it's it's pure. It doesn't create unnecessary layers or context. So uh, I, when I listened to myself and I did what the art was asking of me instead of what my shame was asking of me, uh, yeah. I was proud of that work. Good. Very good. And you know, um, one, of, one of the links that I was reading about you, you said basically the same thing, that, that the clothing is a costume because, you know, it's, it's your costume that you're putting on to hide from the world, basically. Um, yeah. And it was, it, was, it was great to, interesting to think of it that way because, you know, I, I hadn't actually, you know, it, it's always great to, to find somebody who puts things in a different perspective for you, you know. I always love that. Yeah, art should, one of my favorite art should try to do that, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure, definitely. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about your inspirations for your previous works and your future works, what those might be? Conceptually, I'm always inspired by issues of isolation and exile, the fracturing of identity and contested property and alienation and separation, you know, a lot of things that are very relevant in our current time. Um, of course. <laughs> but I'm also a visual artist, you know, who responds passionately to the retinal quality of things like, you know, the, the color of a shadow, you know, the broad patches of negative space or a muted color or the shape of a human eye. Um, so balancing those two things uh, has always been an interesting aspect of art making. And like right now, in addition to some other things, there's a project that I'm working on about Antarctica, which I was lucky enough to see a little bit of last year. And I took a lot of photographs and I was absorbed in the monumental nature of what was before I me. I saw some of those those photos when I was on your Facebook profile, not like a stalker or anything, you know, <laughs> looking through those. Actually, trying I, to get more of a sense of who you were. I think you, you might know? have seen, <laughs> I appreciate that. I think you might have seen Icelandic photographs because I didn't actually post awesome. any from Antarctica because they're oh, still okay, okay. yeah they're still <laughs> they're still uh they're still in that that really sort of sensitive stage where I'm not I'm trying to find out what they are still yeah you know uh, yeah. there's a big difference between a touristic photograph you know and 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 a piece of art and yeah, you know definitely. when you're someplace amazing and you're there with your camera uh those two instincts can get blurred very quickly and so I'm still figuring this project out, but I think it actually will be drawings and not photographs. So I'm excited. Really? Yeah, I'm excited to discover. I can't wait to see that. Yeah. I definitely cannot wait to see oh, that. Oh, thank you. I, you know, I'm the, I'm the type of person too, like, you know, if I see a sunset or something, I, you know, I'm immediately pulling out my camera. So, you know, because <laughs> I used to be able to draw when I was younger, but that, that, that time has come and gone. I'll say for sure that definitely has. But, uh, but yeah, that's I think great. that's a really you know when it's done. Yeah, it's a really worthwhile instinct, Scott, to photograph the sunset and other things like that. You know, these these really elemental moments of our lives happen on a regular basis. And I think cynically we're trained to think that that's a, you know, a cheesy or a, or a redundant impulse. I, I don't think it is at all. Um, well, thank yeah, you. I appreciate yeah, it. I photograph the sunset as well. <laughs> okay. I'll, uh, I'll try to go back and find some of my greatest hits and send to nice. you. Nice. <laughs> So you um, you directed the film Liberty Bait. Um, do you want to talk about that experience directing? Yeah, uh, I haven't directed that many short films. 
um, I have made a lot of like uh, experimental non-linear yeah. video art pieces but this is my first attempt at making something that while sort of non-linear was definitely narrative and I was inspired by Edward Snowden and the, the psychological purgatory that he found himself in after that act of bravery that sent him into exile and so the film it's not a portrait of Snowden uh, literally but it's heavily inspired by the acts of his whistleblowing and and right. and then his um, his flight so I was I was interested in sort of speculating on the emotional fallout for a man who puts himself in that position. Um, so the film was scripted. Uh, I So, okay, it's nonlinear. It kind of jumps around, has some voice over, but the the central structure of the, it's of the story- It's beautifully shot, by the way. I wanted to throw that oh, out thank there. you. <laughs> uh, I, I enjoyed shooting it. Um, so the, cent the central conceit is this interview structure. So I wrote the full interview um, I played the the character that's inspired by Edward Snowden, and then I had the journalist. And so we shot the whole thing. We recorded it over uh, Skype, you know, so that it already had that look of something that was, you know, done at a distance. I guess it would be perfect to do it during the quarantine. Uh, and then I discovered the the excerpts that I wanted in the editing process. And, yeah, I did shoot a bunch of B-roll of different landscapes and and things like that that, brought in a little more yeah. aesthetic for sure that's amazing i didn't know that it was shot like that that's awesome it's like i said it was beautifully shot that was like well the first thing i noticed but, which is it's typically one of the first things i noticed about a film anyway is the cinematography and you know, oh me too like one of the first yeah definitely right it's like one of the first things i noticed and and honestly it may sound bad but i kind of if it's if a movie's not well shot i, I don't really get into it as much you know it's, i know what you mean to, well yeah. and that's not that's not necessarily a, a strange response to film. It is a visual medium. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I do really like films that uh, are structured like plays, like as different kind of filmmaking, and that, that the writing is the point and the acting yeah. is the point. That's fine. But my favorite films are, you know, like The Tree of Life by Terrence Malick and Stalker by Tarkovsky, like films that are really invested in in the visual quality of the filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. The the cinematography and the set design, the costumes. I get I get lost in all that, you know. It's just it's just it's beautiful. It really yeah pulls you into that world, and I appreciate those films that take that extra time to you know to actually give have their movie or television series, what have you, to actually say something. I love that totally. Um, question eight was, I mean, you may have kind of went into it. How did you really prepare for your directing duties on Liberty Bake? Because um, you did most everything on that film, right? Yeah. I mean, or is there really a lot to go into with that or no? Uh, well, let's take it in a different direction then. I I did write it and direct it and I acted in it and I edited it and I did even the color grading. Yeah. And um, which is another aspect like, you know, you shoot some, some footage, but then, you know, how you manage that footage in post is really important. And I wanted this high contrast look and limited palette. Um, so the one area that I went into all of that sort of feeling like I knew what I wanted from the project, but the one area that I had a certain level of uncertainty about was the score, because I also I wrote the music, the you know that that scores the film. And when you write music for a film, you can very quickly overwrite it, where it dominates the scene in a heavy-handed way. And so I did do a lot of research about film scores and just a lot of deep thinking about film scores, listening to film scores in a different way to try to find out, like, how, what do I want from this? You know, I want it to contribute yeah. to the narrative without distracting from it. So I don't know if I got it perfect, but I 
was ultimately happy with what I was able to pull together. Like with anything else, even if you put a lot of time into a piece of music and you like it, if it's not working, you have to just sort of, you know, call that, uh, uh, you know, more fodder for the scrap pile. Yeah, absolutely. So what might we be seeing from Jordan Esso in the future? The pandemic has, like it has for a lot of people, I said artists aren't ever really out of work, um, but I do mean that in a more personal way. I did have projects postponed or, you know, indefinitely put on hold. So, you know, there'll be, there'll be new work. Uh, the Antarctic work hopefully will be the next show. Um, but there's also, you know, I keep busy with a lot of different things. So there's uh there's a piece that I'm almost done with that hopefully will be in, in a different show uh, later this summer. So we'll see a lot of gallery shows. Have I seen that one? What's that? Yes, you have. <laughs> have I, I did one? show. Yeah. I oh, okay. showed you work in progress on that. <laughs> A lot of gallery shows are they're, they're online now, of course. So it's that's impressive. I didn't know. Yeah, that. Yeah, they have a lot of online viewing rooms. It's not the best way to look at certain work, obviously, but it is right. But that's still cool that they, you know, they're still being seen. That's great. You yeah. Know? Um, on at least from my perspective, it's great. Um, so do you have any last words? Anything you'd like to uh, leave the audience with here? Leave the audience with a um, with a message. A daunting task, but I'd say that. You know, to state the obvious, we're moving through a, a pretty interesting paradigm shift in our country in a couple of important different ways. And I would say that, you know, art helps us process these experiences. It can help distill the essence of what is most powerful and most relevant about the thresholds we're moving through. So um, as we stay tuned to our community and the world around us, of course, and the news, you know, let's also turn to art because it does understand things that we do not. And it understands it in a language that we sometimes ignore. That was beautiful. That really was. Can can we quote that? Like, <laughs> put it on, like, yeah, with your photograph. That was beautiful. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for really thanks for doing was. this today. Thank you for doing this today, Jordan. I'll be in touch with you very shortly and uh, just give you an update on the episode. I appreciate you taking your time. I really do. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Hey, this is Brian with another movie review for the film Attack of the Killer Refrigerator. Attack of the Killer Refrigerator is a 1990s shot-on-video movie. It follows a group of friends who abuse a refrigerator during a party. They spend most of the time hitting it with a hammer to get the ice out of the icebox, but little do they know the refrigerator is planning its revenge. The film falls into a gore fest as the fridge attacks and eats the party guests one by one. This film was originally released by the Don and Michelle video label in 1990 and is a highly sought-after tape, which fetches hundreds on the market. It hasn't had a release since then that I know of except for VHS rips at conventions and YouTube videos. The film was paired with another short film called The Hook of Woodland Heights. What makes the film work is its silly premise, which is played seriously throughout the film. There are no cheesy jokes which makes the film highly enjoyable to watch. If your kid isn't watching Swadley and Dean, get on the official Swadley and Dean YouTube channel. They'll love it, and you'll love it. Where's Swadley and Dean? Where's Swadley and Dean? Where's Swadley and Dean? Where's Swadley and Dean? Where's Swadley and Dean?